Welcome to the Organic Wine Podcast. I'm Adam Huss coming to you from Los Angeles, California. Thanks so much for listening. The sponsor for this episode is Centralis Wine. Centralis is an ecological winery that I started to protect or benefit the environment and my community with every business and winemaking decision. I envision a wine world in which humans are the students and servants of the non-human world, regenerating and protecting the vitality of ecosystems and promoting the diversity of life through wines that uniquely and deliciously reflect local abundance. Centralis wines feature foraged prickly pears, urban perennial polyculture wine garden produced grapes and other fruit, gleanings from urban fruit trees, dry farmed century old vines, and organic and biodynamic viticulture. If this sounds interesting to you, join our email list or wine club at centraliswine.com. That's C E N T R A L A S wine.com. For this episode, I have the pleasure of talking with two of my favorite authors on soil and our utter dependence on it, Anne Beclay and David R. Montgomery. Anne is a science writer and public speaker focusing on the connections between people, plants, food, health, and the environment. She has been known to coax garden plants into rambunctious growth and nurse them back from the edge of death with her regenerative gardening practices. Her work has appeared in digital and print magazines, newspapers, and radio. Her gardening practices have been featured in independent and documentary films. David is a MacArthur Fellow and Professor of Geomorphology at the University of Washington. He is an internationally recognized geologist who studies the effects of geological processes on ecological systems and human societies. His work has been featured in documentary films, network and cable news, TV and radio, including Nova, PBS NewsHour, Fox, and Friends, and All Things Considered. Anne and David together, uh, because they live together and are married, have written a few books, and their work includes What Your Food Ate, How to Heal Our Land and Reclaim Our Health, as well as a trilogy of books on soil health, microbiomes, and farming, including Dirt, The Erosion of Civilization, The Hidden Half of Nature, and Growing a Revolution. I highly recommend checking out all of these books, uh, especially if you are in any way involved with agriculture or soil or the things that come from it. These books are not only about soil, but about agriculture, our food system, human health, and survival, and the climate. And perhaps shockingly, they provide ample evidence for a way forward that provides solutions to the problems we face in all of these areas. Dare I say that they provide hope? And even more importantly, he says sarcastically, they provide ample evidence for how to farm grapes in a better way to make more delicious wine. Enjoy. And David, thanks so much for doing this. I'm really excited to talk to you. Welcome. Yeah, thank you, Adam. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of, you know, your work. I've read a couple of your books, as I mentioned. And I think um, I, I, I'm really excited to talk to you because, you know, from what I can tell from your latest books, your studies that you've done, like shown again and again, that we already know the solutions to many of our problems. And the solutions are often win-win for everyone and everything involved, uh, unless you're selling plows or producing agrochemicals. Um, so, it, it, there's a lot of cause for hope and optimism. However, I'm guessing that the one really big hurdle that we need to clear is how to affect policy change to implement these solutions at a regional and national level, given our political situation. So that's a really big question that I want to get to, but I want to start with your story first. I just sort of wanted to tease that <laughs> as, a, as a question I'd love to get to, because I think it's vitally important to everything that you guys are doing. Um, 
what I what I really relate to about your story is how sort of falling down this rabbit hole began because you just decided to grow some stuff in your sort of semi-urban backyard. Is that right? Can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah, that it it did start with this, you know, kind of my basic desire um which finally was going to be possible to do in Seattle when we bought a house some years ago and that was to make a garden. And mm-hmm. um I had messed around with um with gardening and plants but never at the scale, you know, of a whole garden. And so what's kind of funny Adam is that so my background is in um in biology and natural history and environmental sciences. And so I was really enamored with the plants, you know? So Mm -hmm. the botanist was like, oh, the plants, look at all the different plants we're going to have and here's how they're going to (laughs) look and so on and so forth. And so we pretty much scraped everything off of our uh, lot except for the house. And there we were down to our dirt. Mm -hmm. And what is kind of embarrassing now that you know, I look back on it is that neither the biologist nor uh, the geologist, David, we didn't really take a very close look at our our dirt at that time until it came (laughs) the day to get the plants in the ground. And then I went, holy crap, we've really got some bad dirt here. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of the long story short. And so I, like I said, I'd done enough enough gardening, enough growing of plants and, and enough, you know, rescuing of plants that I thought, okay, well, you know, kind of blown the budget on the plants here. There's not a lot of money left to do anything with the soil, but, uh, organic matter, that is what this soil needs. That is what my gut told me. So I went about collecting all kinds of organic matter, mostly as close to home as, as possible so that I could get it you know, and bring it into the garden. And so what kind of things were those? It was, you know, making friends with the arborists that were in the neighborhood who were mm-hmm. doing, uh, you know, tree pruning and stuff. Wood chips are then and now remain one of my absolute favorite forms of organic matter. And then, mm-hmm. you know, Seattle is, you know, overflowing with coffee. So that means uh, coffee grounds. So that was another mm-hmm. big thing that I relied on. And then, we had our own, you know, contributions of just food waste in a worm bin. And then we had a neighbor who has these beautiful oak trees. And so in the fall, all he did was complain about his leaves. And all I did was say, great, keep complaining. I'll be down there to get some. And, and so I brought oak leaves home. And I I really was, was that very first summer water was a big problem. Watering and keeping it in the soil was a big problem. And I thought, okay, just mm. throw these mulches together, throw, throw some of the wood chips, mix it up with the coffee grounds. Okay. This is too wet. Go get some dry leaves. Okay. Now this is just the kind of texture and moisture level that I want. Go throw that on the bed. You can come back later and dig it in. So I, I essentially was doing sheet mulching with these different combinations mm. of organic matter and it helped a lot. It helped keep moisture in the soil and that helped the plants survive. And the fact is I never did go back to dig it in because, you know, is anybody who is a farmer or gardener knows there's never enough, you know, hours of daylight to do all the things you'd like to do. So you sort of deal with the emergencies, deal with the whims of your, 
you know, your desires on a given day to go, you know, either really get into something or, you know, be more contemplative and wander around and go, oh, look at all this stuff I have to do. I don't feel like doing it today, maybe tomorrow. <laughs> so, you know, those are the kinds of things. So in, in pretty short order, um, several years later, this is something else that was happening. I was moving plants around because that's the other thing that happens in a garden is you don't like where things end up or you realize wow, that was a really stupid move to put this plant next to that plant. So you move them. And in order to move the plants, you got to push the mulch aside. And when I began to do that, I called Dave over. I'm like, hey, check this out. Look at that tiny little dark layer that was never there before. This is neat. Mm. This organic matter is, I don't think I am going to dig it in because it's decomposing right where I want it. So this is perfect. I'm saving labor. I'm saving my time and plants are getting what they want. And it got to the point where, you know, there had been sort of, you know, net imports of organic matter into the garden. And um, I'd say within about maybe five, seven years, uh, it was becoming a situation where, uh, great, wow, the garden is generating all of the organic matter I need to continue making the sheet mulches. And, um, and so there was no, I still, you know, if I see a good pile of wood chips, I can't resist. So, you know, I, I will still bring those in, but anyway, that's kind of where this all started. And at the time Dave was writing, um, the, the first book that we kind of call the beginning of the dirt trilogy, which was about sort of the demise of soil, um, mm. you know, in the, uh, long, that's, the long walk. That's dirt. Yeah. Right dirt growing or, or the the erosion of civilization right is yeah. that the subtitle the, you got it that that was it that okay. was a book that i started working on um really sort of as a labor of love uh you know i'm a geologist i've worked on you know erosional processes and how they shape landscapes for you know most of my professional career and i wanted to write a book that looked back at the history of you know how people had influenced soil erosion and what i ended up writing as I, the deeper I got into it and the more that I learned about it, as I was writing a history of farming and about how the way people treated the land affected the way the land treated their descendants. So, you know, there's mm. story after story from societies around the world of places that, you know, degraded their land to the, to the lasting detriment of the people who continued to live on the land, their descendants. Um, and as I was literally trying to finish that book up, struggling with how to write you know, and not too pessimistic last chapter that captured this, you know, the, the, the astounding history of land degradation around the world through the ages. Here Anne was restoring fertility to our yard, you know, just right outside the back door at a pace that a geologist considered, you know, screamingly fast to, to start rebuilding <laughs> soil in, you know, less than a decade is uh, a lot different than the, you know, the centuries to millennia that are generally taught that it takes to build, you know, an inch of fertile soil. And that triggered all kinds of questions about, well, how is this working? How can this happen so fast? What's what's actually behind it? And that's what spurred Anne and I to write The Hidden Half of Nature together, looking at how she restored life to our land, uh, life to our yard, and what the role of microbes, the bacterial and fungal communities in the soil were playing in taking all that organic matter that she was layer, layering around the yard and recycling it, in effect, back into the, the materials for life to take up to uh, really build new life and to build the life in the soil. And um, we sort of went from there. 
And then the next book was Growing a Revolution. Is that right? Is that the third of the trilogy, the Soil trilogy, or or? You got it. That's, that right? that's the third okay. of the of the dirt trilogy, and the uh, <laughs> Growing a Revolution grew out of the question that remained after we uh, looked into the role of soil ecology in building and supporting soil health, and the parallels between what goes on around the roots of a plant and what goes on in the human gut in terms of partnerships with microbial life. I mean, we've all heard about the microbiome at this point that, you know, our, our onboard um, uh, microbes in our gut that helps sort of modulate and regulate our health. Um, but there's these amazing parallels between what goes around around the roots of a plant and what goes on in our gut with the obvious difference that, you know, what's inside and what's outside is reversed for those two systems. Um, but growing mm. a revolution grew out of the the question that was sort of lingering after we wrote the hidden half of nature, which was okay. We could, if you can restore soil that fast in uh, an urban lot with access to you know lots of coffee shops and arborists and neighbors with oak leaves, um, that's <laughs> one thing. But what about doing it on um, on full scale operational farms around the world? And so I took some time away from the university to go and visit farmers around the world who had done to their farms what Anne had done to our yard. So we visited regenerative farmers across the Midwest in Equatorial Africa, Central America, up in Canada, um, and looked at some of the parallels between what they were doing and what Anne had done to our yard to try and draw broader lessons for how we could restore fertility to the world's farmland soils um, and do it in in what turned out to be remarkably short order. There's it's it. I didn't set out to write an optimistic book, but it turned into one because of where I think the uh, the direction that it supports us thinking about. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems like all of these books uh, provide sort of study after study, case after case. It's like a compilation of showing again and again from literally every corner of the globe that like a regenerative form of agriculture is is really the most productive, healthy, economic, and sustainable way to farm pretty much anything. Um, and you've compiled uh, like a, a mountain of evidence uh, of, of that. And I mean, it's that's what's exciting and I think optimistic about it. It's also, you know, it's yeah, like like I said, it's sort of like we we know there's just too much evidence, it seems at this point to suggest that conventional farming is anything other than, I think I heard you actually uh, refer to it, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but a sort of the, the farming of the last 20 years is something, or the last hundred years, is, and the green revolution is something we should look at as a as a failed experiment, essentially. Um, it's, go, go ahead if you want to respond to that. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I'd tell, call it necessarily a failed experiment okay. because it did succeed at one thing, and that was raising crop yields, which was viewed okay. as the singular goal. But if we look at it in terms of was it a wise experiment in terms of how it was played out and run, having that singular goal of only prioritizing yields turns out to think have been a mistake. And what, what Ann and I argue in the new, the new book, What's Your Food Ate, is that in right. trying to prioritize um, you know, feeding the world, we lost sight of nourishing the world and taking care of the land, which helps us to nourish the world. So I would basically characterize the last hundred years of agriculture as it's, it's a failed experiment in terms of rebuilding soil health because it did the opposite. Conventional farming has continued to accelerate the degradation of land. And um, but it's a um, it's time 
I would think, to essentially rethink what we think of as the primary goals of you know, large-scale, nation-scale agriculture and broaden it from simply trying to provision calories to a populace to try and provision nourishing food that can best support human health. And therein, there's a lot of missed opportunities in the last hundred years. Um, and that's, mm. that often tends to be the problem with you know, singular objectives. If you're dealing with a complex system like agriculture that involves you know, ecology, chemistry, physics, weather, <laughs> uh, economics, um, <laughs> uh, you know, optimizing for a single thing, can often blind you to the um, the inadvertent side effects of things like declining nutrient density in crops and, and other things that have affected uh, human health at a fairly broad scale. Yeah I, yeah, I think part of the, I mean, Dave put his finger on it when he mentioned sort of a single objective. I think every time, um, you know, people have tried to solve a problem, we look at it sort of unidimensionally, which is to say, okay, here's this one thing we'd really like to accomplish. So, you know, let's take, oh, you know, something that's been on our minds, uh, you know, a lot in the last several years is, you know, human pathogens. And uh, if you consider <laughs> infectious diseases that come out of pathogenic bacteria and viruses, um, we, we obviously don't want those things uh, in our bodies because they're, you know, it's bad news. So then we thought, you know, and this was going back to sort of the dawn of antibiotics. And it seemed at that time that, wow, we can use this thing called penicillin, which is interestingly enough, you know, a fungal product. And right. we can, there's other antibiotics that are made in the soil by soil bacteria. And we can learn what these are, we can synthesize them in a lab, and then lo and behold, they become these really powerful drugs, and we've knocked out one infectious disease after another. And then, you know, decades later, with all this microbiome science, we're coming to realize just how powerful these antibiotics are and how they kind of scuttle and perturb um, all of the, the either neutral or beneficial microbes that comprise, you know, the human microbiome and for that matter, the soil microbiome. So somehow, Adam, we've got to get to this place in medicine and agriculture where we can embrace multiple objectives and goals and be able to better ascertain what are the trade-offs. If we do this, then what? If we do that, mm. then what? And, and to sort of see things in their totality. And we have not done a great job with that at agriculture, in agriculture or medicine. And so uh, that's why I think sort of taking a, a regenerative approach to things, I really like that word because it gets, it gets at, um, that it's possible as a consequence of agriculture specifically to leave soil better off and not worse off. And I would hope that in, you know, the medical world somehow we'll figure out a way to use antibiotics, which are really important uh, in ways that, you know, don't harm uh, the human microbiome. So, you know, that's kind of, I think the new <clears throat> name of the game. And I look at a lot of things that are happening in the climate realm and I wonder, 
so all of these ways of trying to clean up the atmosphere and suck the carbon out and so on, which, which methods are going to leave um, the planet better off and people better off and which methods maybe are not headed in that direction, although they may accomplish the singular goal of removing carbon from the atmosphere. So that, that I think is our, that is humanity's, you know, major challenge for this century, at least. That's a, yeah, that's a really great question. Um, I I think about that as well. Just, yeah. how, How much of, uh, you know, the thing, the, the actions that we're taking are motivated by sort of short-term thinking and, and yet we'll be doing long-term damage, even though we've accomplished this one thing, uh, with regard to carbon dioxide. Mm -hmm. Um, that's great. I mean, can you talk about, I mean, there's, there's so many exciting studies. It's hard to narrow them down that you guys talk about. Um, and I, I know, you know, in your most recent book, What, what Your Food Ate, you guys really are now verging on, like the soil has led you into uh, become almost nutritionists in a way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and I do love that you made, you were very careful in that book to, you'd be talking about a certain kind of fat and you'd say, you know, just because we're saying like omega-6 does this doesn't mean that it's bad. You know, you have to think about you know, you, you can't think good, bad in terms of these things. Um, you have to think, like you said, more holistically, more like a, a, a symbiosis of, of multiple different things and balance. And, and uh, I, I really appreciated that holistic form of thinking. And you guys just stated it really well as well. Um, it seems like also the more we learn, I mean, you mentioned, you know, penicillin and being a fungus like it seems like the more i just heard a a statistic that we've only identified and studied something like six percent of the fungi on the planet yeah and yeah and that there's this massive amount of stuff that we still have to learn and and so there is that sense of like well we can have a little humility like who knows what we're going to discover but i wonder if you could talk about you know some of the things that we are learning and what's kind of exciting you guys now yeah, I in that think, in that soil, you know, whether yeah. it's soil, soil microbiology, soil health, you know, in that realm. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think and its relation of, to us and everything. Yeah, David and I, we were just talking this morning. We we were working on something, and um, it struck me that so much of the time in agriculture, especially when we're in the context of crops, we talk about. Um, plants are, you know, sucking up nutrients from the soil. And, and we, you know, most people think, oh yeah, nutrients. Yeah. Stuff like magnesium and zinc and iron and so on. And what we don't talk about enough, uh, I think is there are those straight ahead nutrients that are well recognized, both what they are and how critical they are. Right. Like, so NPK, nitrogen, um, potassium, and phosphorus. Those are the three big things that if you want a plant to grow, it's got to have those. And common sources for those are the soil or in the case of nitrogen, you know, bacteria that can pull it out of the atmosphere and make it available to plants. That That is like rock solid stuff. But what's been coming to light is also 
that we, and I guess this is maybe a little bit what you mean when you say we, we sort of became, you know, these, you know, bench nutritionists to, in order to be able to write <laughs> what your food ate, because it turns out, I think, and I, I, you know, we try to make the case in the book, the way we think about and define, you know, quote, nutrients is really pretty limited and pretty narrow in light of what we're learning about soil microbes and all of the things that they do. And so in many instances, plants are not just, you know, looking to suck out, you know, nutrients in the soil that have come out of, you know, from the decay of rocks or the decay of some kind of organic matter. Because bacteria, um, and I, you know, who knows, probably fungi as well, but since we only know, you know, 6% or maybe even less the fungi in the soil, how do we really know, you know, what are they doing and how are they functioning? What we do know is that all these microorganisms, um, they are, they're living. And so they have a metabolism and they have, you know, a genome and they are able to make things and release things from their tiny, you know, one celled bodies. And so these microbial metabolites, plants are also taking up the products of microbial metabolism. And it's, this is huge in my mind because it's, it's sort of the dark matter of nutrition, if you will. And so Mm. this is this whole unknown or, you know, recently discovered, we're learning a lot about it, this whole new universe of how how plants communicate with the soil microbiome to take in not just nutrients, but let, it's, it's molecules and compounds. It's all of the chemistry that's out there that plants need. And so they've co-evolved with the soil microbiome in the same way that they've co-evolved with pollinators. And we don't hmm. think about that enough when we talk about things like crop, you know, crop nutrition or the way that that crops get nutrients, um, you know, that they need. And we always phrase it in terms of growth. Plants need these things to grow. We, we rarely phrase it in terms of, oh, that's right, the plant body, that green body is sitting out there in the environment and it's dealing with challenges all the time, pathogens, you know, these days, heat, drought, freezes, stuff like that. And so part of the relationship between plants and the soil microbiome is about these microbial metabolites that are also something, you know, that the plant, you know, quote, sucks into its body. And, and these things I think are proving, um, you know, you want to talk about agrochemicals, we should talk about the chemical factory that is a plant and the chemical factory that is the soil (laughs) microbiome. And, um, if I worked at an agrochemical company, I'd really want to know a lot more about those things because we have sort of nature's alchemists and nature's, you know, pharmacists and chemists sitting, sitting around us, sitting, you know, on farms and in gardens. We just don't know enough about them. Hmm. That's fantastic. Yeah. I know you talked uh, in What Your Food Aid uh, about the overlooked importance, uh, you know, vital importance really to our health too, of their ability to uptake and communicate with these, I guess, phytochemicals or, you know, sort of tertiary things that we don't think about 
as the big ones, um, you know, as the big factors for health and growth. Uh, from what I understand, that actually can apply pretty directly to wine and wine quality and wine flavor as well. Have you guys <laughs> looked into that at all? Do you, do you have anything to say on that well, spectrum? We've looked into it a little bit. We didn't find as much research uh, on that as um, as you might like, uh, but it's a big area. Um, <laughs> Darn it. Yeah, but it's a big area where the connections do seem like they should translate right over. Um, right, right. Because there's, there's uh, you know, what we were able to find was uh, studies that looked at how farming practices uh, particularly tillage and synthetic fertilizer use and agrochemical use influenced um, the ability of, of crops to take up mineral micronutrients um, but and also to produce phyto those phytochemicals, these plant-made compounds that are made in response to stimuli from soil life or to take up the microbial metabolites that Anne was talking about. Um, right. And and also then if you get into sort of animal agriculture, looking at the sort of the, the fat composition of meat and dairy, those are all things where there's there's pretty solid evidence that farming practices actually affects them. And what's known enough now about the mechanisms behind that the, uh, to really sort of draw the connections and to think about extrapolating to, you know, crops or areas that weren't directly involved in those studies. And that's where I think some of the relevance um, for uh, the wine world comes in. Now, there were studies, and Anne, correct me on this if I'm misremembering any of these, but there have been studies that have looked at things like the microbiome on the grapes or on the plants or around the roots of plants under differing farming practices that have found systematic differences, say, between biodynamic wines, organic wines, and conventional wines. What that translates into in terms of, of flavor and consumer experience in wines, you know, I, I think we're willing to uh, do an experimental project if somebody would like to fund it so we can go around the world drinking wine. Um, but we, we didn't find that. Please, stuff. please use me as your, uh, you know, PA or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll be, I'll do, I'll take notes. I'll be the, I'll be, yeah. <laughs> Um, whatever <laughs> but you know there are studies that have looked at things like how farming practices can affect uh the res the amount of resveratrol in crops or or um uh or and how those kinds of compounds then turn around and influence human health um so there's there's interesting connections but it's sort of an open world um and in the wine world you know in terms of you know tillage plowing one of the big sort of impacts that we wrote about in dirt and that definitely disturbs soil life a lot as you might imagine it would um you know what is the importance of that for you know the rows between vines because obviously no no vintner in the right mind or no vineyard owner in the right mind is going to plow their vines under every year <laughs> um right <laughs> but how they treat the land in between their vines you know it's a similar thing for for orchards and orchard crops and yeah. soil health really has been shown to matter for the health of plants in those environments and to affect the, um, um, the microbial communities that are in contact with those plants. Um, and yeah, the connections are, are very, very intriguing at this point. Um, and the, um, yeah, the, it, it seems hard to avoid the argument that uh, healthy soils are going to affect the health of crops and then what's actually in those crops. Um, how desirable those things are and what they mean for things like wine, I think is, uh, you know, an area that could use uh, more 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I, I'll, uh, yep. Yeah, we'll, we'll, sign us up. <laughs> there's so much, um, there's so much complexity, uh, you know, in a vineyard or on a farm or inside the gut of an animal. And sometimes, um, you know, we want to nail down the causal mechanisms. We want to find the one thing that will explain the everything. And I, I think, you know, sort of these days with modern science and, and, you know, diagnostic techniques and technology and everything, we're getting this ever more detailed view of small things, which is good because then that helps you understand how all of these individual components add up to explain a big picture. But sometimes we stay in these side alleys and these rabbit holes too long. And so, and I think this happens, um, it's easy, you know, when you're dealing with thousands of microbial species and thousands of microbial metabolites to get stuck down in the details but what I think at the same time, because there's there's value to that, but at the same time, I think we need to come back out of these holes and back out of these details and ask ourselves a really fundamental question. Okay, so based on what we know about ecology, based on what we know about how plants communicate with soil microbes, how humans communicate with their own microbiome, what do we know about what makes those processes uh, functional, robust, self-regulating, self-regenerating. And that when you think about things on a process level, you're really asking the question, we just want this to work. We, we want to work. We want these things to work. We don't want to be inadvertently jamming monkey wrenches into biology. You know, every time we, we farm or we eat or, you know, any number of things. So I sort of think about the wine world in that whole context like this. And I think wine people really get this say in the way that uh, maybe, you know, tomato people, tomato growers or lettuce growers or zucchini growers don't get. And that is that the, the way that the vine grows and the phytochemical profile of these different grapes occurs is, is, you know, through growing conditions and wine people really get how that transfers through to flavor. I mean, right. That's like a huge thing yeah. in the wine world. And so if we know that these phytochemical profiles, phenolics in particular come about because of the way the vine is communicating and growing, you want that process to not be messed up. And so I really like, you know, in, in talking with wine people and being at a couple of conferences, I really like this notion that, you know, the wine is made out there in the field. The winemaker yeah. is just sort of the um, conductor of it all, bringing the right things together at the right time. And, and so I really like that, that whole concept because it's, um, it's putting sort of the cred in the biology. And if we know how that, those biological processes work, 
you end up with wine, you know, that has credibility too. And and it puts sort of a different spin on the whole concept of terroir, where if we think about terroir, not so much as directly the effects of, say, the soil or the climate on, on what's produced in the wine, but if you think about it as mediated through all those microbial connections, a lot right. of uh, it is happening in terms of the biology. And that means that, you know, the, the farmer, the, the grower is actually as critical an element in terms of terroir as the sun and the rocks and the soil mm-hmm. through the way they actually treat their land, because that's going to affect the biology that's in the land, the microbial ecology that the plants are in communication with. And if, if uh, terroir is microbially based, as has been argued in a number of, of, of well-placed research papers, um, then it puts a whole different sort of thing. It's, it's not just the land and the climate, it's the whole systems. Um, and it puts the farmer yeah. sort of on an equal page with nature in terms of how the land is being treated as being important for that. Yeah, yeah. I, I always say, you know, I, I've stopped looking at a vineyard as the, as the rows of vines. You know, it's, it's everything in, mm-hmm. around it, the whole ecosystem, including the human culture in which it's growing, you know, because we are, you know, I mean, the farmer gets to make choices, but, you know, the, the, the culture, the choices that the farmer gets to make are often determined by the culture in which that farmer lives as well. And, you know, what, what they've been exposed to in terms of knowledge and, and practice. And, and that becomes part of the terroir as well, because they're, they're part of that, you know, they're yeah. part of that vineyard, you know, the culture is part of the vineyard. And, that, and that's, um, that's so true of just farming in general too, around the world. Yeah. That's, that's very good. point. Yeah. Really well said guys. I, I love that. So how do we not screw it up? As you were saying, Anne, <laughs> what are the things that we can, <laughs> how do we keep these processes, uh, re, you know, self-regenerating and healthy and vital and, and vibrant? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that takes, um, you know, a change of, of, now that I say this, you know, I don't, I don't know what thing precedes what, you know, is it the change of heart that leads to a change of mind or is it a change of mind that leads to a change in heart? But whatever way that works, maybe it's both, <laughs> right. it will eventually uh, translate into new behaviors and new practices, um, whatever, mm. you know, the motivational source is. And so I think that once a, a anybody who's engaged in you know whatever form of agriculture as soon as they start i think to see some of these connections and farmers and i imagine that that um vineyard folks are the same way they're they're not really going to do anything unless they see some evidence that oh you mean all that stuff that you're talking about with soil health like that's how you got you know this tomato like really you you know that's all you did so as soon as we see, I think, more examples um, out on the ground of new practices, I think it can light up the eyes of um, of a farmer or anybody anybody engaged in, ag- in agriculture. Because I, I have to say, by and large, farmers um, farmers are some of the smartest, most uh, innovative people I have met. Right? They're constantly fixing. And I know this yeah. is from my gardening experience. You're constantly solving problems and trying to fix things, whether it's, 
you know, yeah. a piece of equipment that busted on you because it's a piece of crap. So you got to kludge it and MacGyver it to get it to work. <laughs> or, um, you know, you've put some, you know, in my case, it's like, oh man, that mulch is way too dry and it's not doing what I want. Now I need to go get some sopping wet stuff and, you know, get the moisture right. So I think when you're, when you're constantly sort of trying to move to this, what in biology we call homeostasis. And so that is trying to get to a place of, dis, a place of stability in a really dynamic environment. That when you can sort of see your farm or your, your vineyard in those, um, in those ways, I think you become more of a, you become smarter, you become more of a, a tinkerer because, you know, let's face it, you're trying to grow a plant or raise an animal. Conditions are never the same, you know, rarely the same from week to week, certainly not season to season. And so you're constantly like hopping, like, what am I going to do now? What am I going to do now? And so if mm. you can, I think, apply that mindset with the overall goal of, of getting to better soil health, you sort of shift some of that burden. I mean, I'd much rather let my soil do the kludging and MacGyvering on, on <laughs> right. you know, getting me a healthy plant than me, the dumb human sitting out here going, I don't know what you want. Can you tell me dear plant? And the, you know, of course that's never going to happen, but you know, I think I put a lot of credence in, in, in biology and what plants and animals already, you know, know how to do. And in part, that's what, you know, the chapter on body wisdom in what your food ate is, is, you know, attempting to get at. It's just that if we don't recognize that it's happening and we don't support it, it's, it's hard not to intervene with agrochemicals or tillage or, you know, any number of things that get applied to to crops, animal bodies, and the soil. What now? I know that there are some pretty, um, I, like the five basic principles that you came that you've sort of seen globally, or maybe there are just three principles globally. Um, I think that you identified in uh, growing a revolution. Can you talk about those? Like, you know, so what are the basics? Like, if we go back and I mean, just start there. Yeah, so when in in writing Growing Our Evolution, I took off, you know, armed with uh, Anne's experience in the garden, and then visited farmers on you know small subsistence farms in West Central Africa, large industrialized uh, ranches and farms across the U.S. So a whole range of of um, settings, and tried to look at the practices that that regenerative farmers who had been very successful at rebuilding the health and fertility of their land had had employed. Then when you stand back and go, well, what are the common elements across this playing field? Um, it really boiled down to three that were uh, that are essentially you know, going to no-till, minimizing disturbance of the soil. So stop plowing, stop digging up all the worms and slicing up the, the mycorrhizal fungal networks. So less disturbance of the soil, minimizing that. Uh, keeping the land, that's sort of principle one. Um, and that also helps cut down soil erosion. And, you know, if you're going to sustain the soil, you got to keep it on the land. So cutting down erosion is, is, is the down payment on building healthy soil. Um, and then all, the second principle was to uh, keep the land covered in living plants to grow cover crops in between cash crops. Always keep living roots in the soil because that helps plants 
uh, produce what are known as exudates, that uh, compounds they drip into the soil out of the roots to feed their microbial partners um, um, that they recruit with those with those um, exudates. Um, and then the third principle is to grow diversity of crops. Don't just always grow the same thing all the time in the same field. Um, and why do those things work? Because one of the first one in terms of minimizing disturbance, uh, that's essentially providing habitat that's undisturbed that organisms would need. The second one in terms of cover crops, well, that helps build organic matter. That's food. So you're housing and feeding uh, soil life. And then a diversity of life uh, recruits a diversity of, of um life forms in the soil. And that's what you can get to build sort of a robust community of life for, for crops to partner with. So stop disturbing them, feed them, give them partners to play with. That's a recipe for cultivating beneficial life in the soil. And there's a fourth uh, element that some of the farmers I visited for that book uh, were employing, and that was reintegrating animal husbandry into their uh, cropping operations, letting cows, yeah, uh, say. for example, graze off the stubble from their crops and manure their fields. And we came to view that as, as not a necessary requirement for regenerative practices, but a potential accelerant if it's done properly. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say, I'm, of course, thinking all of these and applying them directly to, to wine and vineyards. And, you know, if you're if you are planting cover crops and not tilling, then you need some way to control this, right. you know, the growth and. Yep. And it seems like, the yeah, if you can integrate animals uh, to graze that growth, you have two solutions in one. Yeah. Because you have fertility as well as, you know, controlling the cover crop growth. Um, yep. And uh, now in terms of diversity in perennial systems, do you, do you see, have you guys explored or do you have any thoughts about, you know, sort of interesting things that uh, grape farmers might do in terms of planting interplanting their rows with interesting things other than, you know, just sort of grasses and legumes and right. things like that. Yeah. I think, um, we talk a little bit about this in the chapter about a farmer from South Dakota, whose name is, um, Jonathan Lundgren and Jonathan is, uh, an entomologist. And what was so impressive about his farm you know, surrounded by cornfields was the emphasis that he placed on providing places for pollinators to come and live and thrive. And were I a, a vineyard owner, and certainly if I had the kind of vineyard where, you know, I'm bringing people uh, into the vineyard to look at the grapes and taste the wine and stuff, I think, um, I think where we can combine biology and functional biology with beauty and aesthetics that we have something really special. And so I would look at, at flowering plants and thinking about um, mm. which pollinators, native pollinators and, or, you know, your regular honeybee, what, yeah. When it comes to native pollinators, you know, boning up on who are they, what are their preferred food sources, and where can I get those kind of plants and bring them into my vineyard? Because that would be, that just increases sort of the, the whole totality of, you know, what it is we're after, what I'm after anyway. <laughs> and, um, you know, in an agricultural setting, which is I want this to be as uh, dovetailed 
with ecology and biology and function and performance, uh, you know, so like I said, where where you can get beauty that's functional, I mean, I'm all I'm all about that. That would be yeah. that would be really cool. So that's I I would think about flowering plants and taking better care of pollinators. Is that 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 sounds like a great and like you said and beautiful solution. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I love that. I. Uh, my mind was just wondering, uh, thinking about those things, but are there other sort of mental shifts that you've encountered that you think are some of the more important ones where you know, the majority of the people you encounter pretty much just are, have a, have a skewed idea of what they should be doing? Like what, what are the big challenges that you're seeing in terms of getting people's minds to, yeah. to shift on some of these ideas. Yeah, I'll just say one thing quickly, and that is that um, I, you know, I'm as horrified as as a farmer, farmer or a grape grower when I spot, you know, the aphid or this pest or that pest, and you're really you're really tempted to do it in, squash it, get it out of here. And I think one of the things that we learned from um, one of the no-till vegetable farmers that we feature in the book, this is a guy named Brian O'Hara out in Connecticut, is to, okay, before you want to kill something, think about uh, think about maybe instead of killing everything, how are you going to bring more living things into a system that might take care of this potential pest problem uh, for you? So, you know, a quick way to say that is what if you, what if a farmer woke up every day thinking, instead of thinking, what am I going to go out there and kill today? What if they woke up and thought, what am I going to go outside today and get, you know, onto my farm or what am I going to go out there and do to help, you know, come alive in a way that's going to help me? Yeah, like a, a probiotic versus an antibiotic approach kind of, to yeah. <laughs> to wine and and agriculture. Yeah, I I really like that. I mean, I think I think that is um, in the winemaking as well. Like that's sort of the approach I take. You know, there's I feel like that might boil down the difference between what I think is you know the natural wine approach versus the conventional wine approach, which is like conventional wine is a sort of recipe where you sort of sterilize the juice and then, you know, have a inoculation of the specific thing that you want versus natural wine where it's a, a probiotic approach where you're sort of encouraging the the fostering of these, uh, you know, microbes to be robust and healthy and take off and have a nice fermentation uh, so that you can just manage CO2 and not worry about uh, using a lot of sulfur. Um, I... I definitely think about that approach a lot too now what um how you know i was i know that in this book that you the most recent one what your food ate you finally talk about glyphosate and I'd, I'd heard you say that you held off doing that because there were some studies that you weren't quite sure were conclusive um but you finally started talking about it. i was just at lowe's and uh you know it's there for sale 13.99 a gallon for anybody who wants to buy as much as they want um <laughs> and uh I'm, I'm wondering if you think it should be in our local hardware store at like that and what you know if you want to talk about what you found out and why you finally wrote about it 
Well, you know, one of the odd things we found out about about glyphosate was that in some sampling, I think it was the USGS, if I'm remembering it right, did of, of streams and rivers around the country, there was as much glyphosate in urban runoff as there was in agricultural runoff. We're using it pretty much everywhere, golf courses, yards, farms. It's the yeah. most popular and, and profitable um, herbicide in the world. Um, whether it's wise for us to use as much of it as we do, I think, you know, to me, at least the, the answer is clearly no. <laughs> um, <laughs> and in part, you know, because there's other ways to farm that and to garden and to manage golf courses that we could use that wouldn't need all that glyphosate. And, yeah. you know, the uh, we wrote more about it in the new book, um, in part because there's been more studies that have come out. Um, but also we we're trying to look at the connections, we broke what your food ate into these four sections where we look at how uh, farming practices affect the health of the soil, how the health of the soil affects the health of crops, uh, how what's in our crops and soil affects the health of livestock, and then what all that means for human health. And when you start looking at all those connections, um, you sort of run into glyphosate in most of the of those linkages. Um, right. And there's a lot of been a lot of concern about um, it in terms of its health effects on people, but frankly, there haven't been that many studies that have been conclusive. Um, but there's a lot more studies that look about at its effects on soil life and how it can scramble a soil microbiome, um, not by sterilizing the soil, but by changing the community composition, sort of who's there and what they're doing. And it turns out that there's some pretty clear evidence that it appears to undermine the health of crops by promoting the viability and success of pathogenic organisms, um, certain kinds of fungi, for example, that can can cause root rot in crops. Um, there's other studies that have looked at what uh, it will do to the microbiome of livestock to, uh, to um, and thereby to the health of livestock. Most of those studies have come out of Europe. There hasn't been as much of a look at that uh, in the U.S., um, but in terms of uh, what it's doing to the health of the soil, um, you know, looks like it's changing the, the community compositions, changing our, the, the, the relate kinds of relationships that we were writing about and that help to provision crops with mineral micronutrients and, and spur their, um, their health. So, yeah, we right. finally sort of dug more into that uh, for this book to try and look at what are those different linkages. And one of the things that I came away for, with in looking at that in terms of thinking about glyphosate was to maybe I'm not quite as concerned as, you know, the potential for direct human toxicity, which is how we tend to measure its effects in people. And, you know, and that then industry will argue that, well, it's not very directly toxic to people. So what's the problem? Well, it's the indirect effects that I became more concerned about after digging into the research on it. Um, and that's things like, well, what it does, what would it do to the soil microbiome, to our own microbiome? There's, there's two patents, the two original patents on glyphosate were for it as a mineral chelator, which is a scientific term for something that binds up mineral elements so that they can't be uh, cycled through uh, biological systems. And that could help reduce uh, mineral uptake by crops uh, and therefore mm. what's in food. Um, but the second patent, and what to me is perhaps the more concerning one, uh, is that glyphosate's a pretty good antibiotic. And that's a recipe for if, we're, if it's in our food, if it's in our fields, uh, what's it, what is it doing to all these microbial communities that we've now learned are so important to the health of the partner organisms, the plants out in the farm field or our bodies for the 
communities in our own gut. Um, and the potential for those kinds of indirect effects to affect the health of our crops uh, and the, or the health of ourselves or our livestock are something that I feel needs a lot more sort of uh, attention because that's not really where we the arguments around glyphosate have been tended to be focused or, or discussed. And that's not to downplay the issues around all the cancer cases that are going forward and so forth. Um, but it is to say that there's this other uh, dimension to that that I think, you know, adds further evidence to the um, to the thought that maybe we should not be using so much of it. And that's one of the things I was really um, optimistic about in Growing a Revolution was all the techniques that we went through that regenerative farmers use that allow them to do no-till farming without the use of glyphosate. Right. There's, an al there's alternatives. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Um, has... Has what you've learned in writing these books changed uh, and impacted your buying habits, especially when it comes to wine? And if so, how? Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, what's really interesting about the the wine world, I think that's, that so many consumers are completely unaware of is, um, well, yeah, we'll just grab a bottle of wine. We'll be over, you know, to your place, you know, seven o'clock for dinner. <laughs> And we place all this emphasis on reading nutrition labels and, you know, watchdogging, you know, glyphosate levels in our food supply. And few people realize how much stuff and junk and bad things um, are added to wine. And to me, that's really, um, we first learned about this, I don't know, it was a while, it was a while, it was a while back at all places on a, at an urban soils conference, listening to one of the speakers there. And so we've got this illusion. Most of consumers, I think, have this illusion that wine is this kind of natural thing. I mean, they just fermented the grapes, right? And they put it in the bottle and doesn't this taste good? And, and so I think, um, I think somehow the wine world has to come to grips with the fact that you know, not in all cases is it a natural product and it's some wines are stuffed with as much stuff as, you know, an ultra processed food product. And, and yeah. that stuff's just not good for us. It, it manipulates our body wisdom. It, um, we probably don't even understand, uh, everything that it's doing to us, especially if it's not disclosed about, you know, what is in all this wine. So for sure, it's changed our wine buying habits. And um, <laughs> I know, you know, just like in the food world, you know, there's, there's different certifications and different labels and so on. Um, but I like that, you know, when I see that a wine is organic, or it's Demeter um, certified, or it's a natural wine, or if I know, you know, who made this wine, um, that, that's where we'll tend to look, um, to buy things. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, and it, what's interesting is, I mean, this, this actually is kind of a good segue into what, what I want to be our final topic, but you guys live in Washington and, it is the second largest producer of wine in America, in the U.S., and yet you are 
I'm pretty sure, unless I'm forgetting somebody, the first Washingtonians I've interviewed in over 80 episodes. And that is specifically because Washington is pretty bad when it comes to, you know, organic or better farming. And that that's definitely changing. But, you know, the, the state of Washington wine is not pretty in terms of the in terms of the regenerative viticultural approach or removing pesticides and things like that Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. i I don't know if you guys get to work with washington vineyards and what you're doing you know consulting or in any other way but i'm just curious what the what you see as the state of that is and then i guess the the bigger question is you know right across the border in oregon uh you have one of the best states in i think the best state in the u.s in terms of the percentage of people who are doing organic or better farming um and and to me that just kind of shows that there is this cultural element to what's happening um can you does that lead us to more hope or more despair in terms of <laughs> affecting change uh at a you know at a larger level um and and how do we do that <laughs> there you go some big questions for you it lead, it leads us to drink more Oregon wine, even though we yeah wine, exactly which <laughs> right is, right. Know, um, I'm all for for sourcing locally when one can, but I'd rather source better when need be. Um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. There's there's a lot of um, you know one of the real challenges in trying to shift the whole sort of global farming enterprise to a more sustainable and regenerative basis is is that socio-dynamic the socio-political dynamic ends of it and there's there's habits of growers there's the cultural part um there's incentives i don't know what uh, what the sort of state uh, regulations may be different in the two states um hmm. but it's um it's a really good question but you know uh one of the reasons i'm a geologist is that rocks are pretty easy to deal with <laughs> You get people involved and it gets complicated. Well, I think, you know, that's an interesting observation, Adam, that you made, because not a lot of people, I mean, certainly Washingtonians and Oregonians, you know, would be onto this, but most people lump Washington and Oregon together and say, oh, that's the Pacific Northwest, you know, whatever, volcanoes, this, that, and the other. It's all the same out there. But um, in fact, you know, it's not. And I, I, think maybe part of the explanation for why Washington is is so different from Oregon is that um, the East, both Eastern Washington and Eastern Oregon are hot, dry places. Um, Mm -hmm. And agriculture has, you know, as soon as the, um, I think it was back in the, the Roosevelt era that, you know, we began to irrigate uh, Eastern Washington with the dams on the Columbia and so on. And so that was the springboard for agriculture to take off in Washington state because it's a desert over there. And as soon as you pour water on the land, wow, you know, wow, cherries, look at how they grow. You know, I think Washington state is the world's biggest exporter of cherries or something like that. And, oh, look at all the fruit crops. And then, you know, wine grapes came along later and what they maybe imprinted on was the ag practices at the time for these other perennial crops you know the orchard the the orchard crops the stone fruit cherry and so on and washing and oregon you know to some extent has that same 
legacy, but um, in many ways, Oregon has always been, you know, kind of a greener state, if you will, um, than Washington on on some fronts. Um, so that maybe what's happening um, with Washington, you know, vineyard folks is they're still maybe a little bit on, you know, the agricultural legacy of Washington state. And we also lack, as does Oregon, we really are not sitting here in a Mediterranean climate. <laughs> so, yeah. so whereas California is, and that's a big part of, um, of the wine world. And so we've got, we've got some constraints here and maybe we're not dealing with them as creatively or as biologically as, as we might, but I would sure like to see things change in Washington. I think, I think Anne almost got to what, as I've been sitting here sort of thinking about it and listening to it, cause I've never thought about this before, um, uh, that there might be a, a a fairly simple answer rooted in the cultural connection that you were mentioning, Adam, and that is that you know most of the wine growing in Washington State happens on the east side of the Cascades. Much mm -hmm. of the wine growing in Oregon happens in the Willamette Valley on the west side of the Cascades, and mm -hmm. you know there's a very big cultural difference between the two sides of the mountains in the Pacific Northwest, and it, I don't think it's that surprising upon reflection that the folks who are growing wine on the western side of the mountains might have a higher proportion of people who would be inclined to get into an experiment with and adopt a more organic biodynamic or natural wine growing practices just from the cultural makeup of the populations on the two sides of the mountains yeah, yeah. that's a good that's a good point and i also you know anytime you have agriculture butting up against urban populations and there's issues of toxicity whether direct or indirect you know urban populations are like uh not really you know liking the the spraying of whatever over our homes and and maybe that is what forced oregon growers um to look at different different practices i'm not sure yeah, no, it's well, and it, and it brings up the. I mean, I, I know a lot of this is speculative, just in comparing those two states. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm sure I'm sure you have identified the the you know some of the real you know real causes there. I I'm I'm curious if it. I mean, does that? How does that translate? Or I, maybe the better question is, you know, in in your travels and in dealing with, I, I'm sure, a variety of people, a different different farmers and different, you know, with different perspectives on life and politics and everything else. Um, do you find that there is, you know, that, that, I mean, do, are we at an impasse because of the politics of our nation right now? And, and is that going to hold uh, back implementing some of these solutions? Well, you're, you're right. We are, we are at an impasse in society um, on a lot of levels. I don't think it's healthy. Uh, I think it's consuming way too much of our creativity and our time and our energy. And I sort of think about um, this concept in biology that I talked about earlier, homeostasis. And it's like, how do you remain stable despite all the dynamics that come at you? So I think, mm. I think society is kind of out of homeostasis. I think we used to be able to live together despite our disagreements about things, whether that's, you know, how to grow a grape or corn or tomatoes or whatever onto many other topics. Uh, I don't think it's good for us. I don't think it's good for society. And 
I, I would really like to, you know, see things that start reversing that in just about, you know, every, every place that I see it. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually think that, um, you know, one of the things I took away from my travels uh, around the world visiting regenerative farmers uh, was the broad spectrum of political philosophies that they embrace. It's not a monolithic movement. Um, some of the most conservative friends that I have these days are some of these regenerative farmers from the Midwest who, you know, politically, we probably don't agree on much, but I love what they're doing to their land. And I think mm -hmm. that one of the things that has turned me into an optimist on the issue of the future of agriculture is that I've yet to meet a farmer who was really intentionally destroying their land or intentionally degrading the fertility of the land. They all care about the land and they're aware of it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. I think that there's a, there's a lot of room for uh, common ground in terms of looking at practices that can rebuild the fertility of the land if they work out economically for farmers. And that's where I've started to become an optimist because, um, you know, with the rising price of fertilizers, the rising price of patented seeds, the prices of agrochemicals, the, the depressed prices for commodity crops, um, farmers are so squeezed at the moment that, you know, if you can basically go to them and say, hey, there's this different way of farming that could slash your nitrogen bill, slash your diesel bill, slash your pesticide bill, um, you know, the first response is usually, well, tell me more. Um, because they're interested in that. Um, and I think that these, uh, the adoption of more regenerative practices can be a real engine for revitalizing the, the, the profitability of farms around the world. And there's a lot of side benefits that come with using fewer pesticides and less nitrogen in terms of the environment and pollution. Um, there's a lot of positive elements. Um, and so I think there's room, if we think about the land differently, it may help us at least on a few issues to overcome some of the political divisions that we have in terms of moving this stuff forward. Um, now that may be hopelessly optimistic and naive, but um, you know, I'll, I'll grasp onto that little bit of optimism for <laughs> as long as I can legitimately defend it. Yeah. I mean, I think well, when you take, right, you get two farmers together and there's automatic common ground just by virtue of the fact that they're farmers, they've got experience trying to keep things alive and grow things. And I think if you, you set aside the political views or the other differences and you put them in a room together and, and say, we're just going to talk about, you know, what has worked for you when you grow, you know, X, Y, or Z and what hasn't worked. And let's, you know, kind of um, workshop out what from our collective experience does it look like would be, you know, mm. promising practices to get our soils, you know, back up on their feet, higher function and healthier crops, which, you know, as we argue in what your food ate, the minute you have healthier crops and healthier animals, there's a ripple effect out to the nutritional quality because that's always been, you know, the great promise of agriculture is not only to feed us, but the food that does land on our plates it should be real sustenance, you know, it should be chock full of all of the things that our bodies need to, to remain healthy. Mm -hmm. would, would you say, I mean, it sounds like what both of you are saying in different ways is maybe 
trying to focus on political change might be wasted effort, but it's just letting the systems that work speak for themselves because they are so, you know, they will, they will provide economic benefit to farmers. They will do all these things that are motivating in themselves. And it's sort of from a ground up change, uh, that, that will happen essentially. Is that, is that, do you, do you agree with that? Well, in a way, I actually think we need both. I think that sort of ground up, the bottom up uh, drive and impetus for adopting regenerative practices is there. It's 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 real and viable in farming communities. Uh, but we, I think we also need top down. We need political support for it. Um, but okay. how we go about framing that and casting it might be you know different for for different audiences. But if the common element are that policies, uh, you know, our subsidy, agricultural subsidies, our agricultural policies ought to be aligned to reward farmers who are building healthy soil. Um, yeah. You know, if we can't agree on that as a, as a body politic across this country, then we ain't going to agree on nothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and maybe as a closing shot, um, you said we need to think about soil differently. I know you've, you've stated that beautifully in the book. If you want to sort of summarize what what you think that different perspective is I, I i'd love that well i don't remember how we actually wrote about it in the book but we'll try um see, that's, that's, that's the power of writing stuff down you don't have to remember it. right you don't have to remember it yeah but you know if we, if we look at soil and you know if we look back the last hundred years in effect soil has been viewed as the cheapest industrial input to a, a very industrialized process of, of farming we haven't valued the soil um, particularly in that equation. But if we, if we look at it instead as essentially um, nature's engine for, for growing biomass and producing healthy crops, we, if we look at it as the foundation for, for uh, good farming practices, if we look at soil health as the lens that we should evaluate farming practices through, um, it gives us a whole different perspective on the land that would lead to a different style of farming practices that would value soil life, that would cultivate beneficial life in the soil, and that we argue could produce comparable harvests of more nutritious food. Yeah. And okay, so Adam, I'm going to go all naturey on you with my yeah, with please my, oh, I uh, love input that. on this. So <laughs> I'm, you know, in everything I've I've researched and written and thought about when it comes to soil, it's sort of in my my mind's eye, I see it as nature's greatest wallflower, right? There it is. Mm. You know, we see it sitting on the sidelines, kind of dumpy, not looking so good. Who's going to dance with soil? I want to turn that around and I want to get soil out on the dance floor, swinging partners left and right, you know, shining mm. and vibrant and being the hub of life that it really is. And so the when we begin to think about soil as less of nature's wallflower and more, uh, you know, one of the shining lights of nature, I think we then can begin to treat it differently and see it differently. So, so that's where I want to kind of um, go with this whole notion of, you know, getting people more excited, more passionate, and, and talking more about soil health. That's great. Um, well, thank you guys so much for all this. I, I, there's so much more we could talk about, and I would love to, but I want to be respectful of your time. Um, I highly recommend everybody check out your books. I will be you know, mentioning those. Um, do you have any closing shots or anything that you want to promote? 
No, I mean, if, if people are interested in following up with us or contacting us, uh, we have a website. Uh, it's digtogrow.com, dig the number two, grow.com. And we also are uh, intermittently active on Twitter uh, with the handle at dig to grow, dig the number two, grow. Um, and oh. we're happy to engage with people if they uh, want to approach us. And we obviously encourage people to read all our books. <laughs> I do too. Um, well, thank you again so much. This is great. And I really appreciate you uh, giving your time and sharing your knowledge to, to help us all and hopefully push, push us in the right direction. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, thank you. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. And if you did, please do leave a review for the Organic Wine Podcast. It helps a lot, and we want to get the word out to as many people as we can, which your review will help do. Thanks so much.